Welcome to Friars and Film. We are three Catholic priests from the Order of Preachers, and we're here, as always, to talk about the movies. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're looking at a film called Andre Rublev. Uh, this was made back in 1966. This is the great Russian director, Tarkovsky. Actually, anyone remember this guy's first name? Andre. Andre, oh, there we go. Yeah. Andre Rublev by Andre Tarkovsky. And it was written by Andre Konchalovsky. Oh, my goodness. They're only, people are only named Andre in Russia. That's a, Appar- Apparently. Yeah. Apparently. It's Russian um, for Andrew. So, yeah, he made this back in 1966. <laughs> The first thing, which, which uh, just to give us at least a little bit of credibility, I, I first want to acknowledge the fact that I and probably uh, Father Timothy and Father Allen, who are joining me on this, as always, we will all probably be not pronouncing the title of this movie perfectly or the protagonist, who is also uh, Andre Rublev. I live with a friar here in my Dominican house here uh, in Pleasantville, New York who spent a lot of time in Russia. And so he was getting on my case for how badly I was pronouncing Andrei Rublev. And uh, so I, I got him to show me how it goes. So I, I have a little, I have a recording here for, uh, in which he shows us how to pronounce Andrei Rublev. Here we go. How do you say, how do you say Rublev. Wow. So just for the record, wow. that is how you say that name. Um, I, I, I'm not even going to try. Even but. if that's correct, we can't do that. <laughs> yeah, we can't do it. We, we've committed to Rublev at this point. So, um, but you, now, now, you, now no one can say that it was not pronounced correctly at least once on this podcast. But so, in, but in a go. spirit of greater Americanism, not the healthy kind, not the unhealthy <laughs> kind, we should say Rublev, right? Well, I will definitely be saying Rublev because right. that's still all that I know how to say. Um, on a personal note, th- I'm, I was very excited to see this movie because the famous icon that Rublev is, uh, of which he is the artist, um, the Trinity, uh, that is probably my top favorite icon ever. It's um, it's just been kind of ingrained in my head ever since I was a child because it was we had it, we've always had it there in our home. And I still have a picture of that on my on my wall. Um, wonderful to get to watch an entire film about the very uh, artist who made that that icon, which again is for me very beloved. I'm going to start off as I always do with just general first impressions of the movie. My first impression of this movie: this was absolutely crazy, and uh, that is correct. It, that is correct. It, it, <laughs> and uh yeah so uh I, the, the, this this sentiment was shared by the two of you is that right but also it was good i mean it was also good it can't, it, that's, well that's my next question i'm not yeah we look forward to discussing that. okay well could i could i raise the the question of father frank father frank sudman did he have a take on it had he seen the movie so did- i watched about the first third with him and he had not seen it before and um all that he kept on saying was that 
the black and white palette of the film, the mixture of merriment and then enormous suffering. He mm. just kept on saying, oh, yes, this is very, very Russian. Mm. <laughs> so that was his, that was his main, main, uh, main, main offering there. But, but no, no, he, he has not seen the entire movie, and uh, so I don't have any further thoughts from him to share. Yeah, I, I definitely picked up on that, that oscillation between extremes. It's kind of exhausting. Yeah. So did you think it was a good film, Father Allen? I mean, I'll, I'll go to, as well, but you, yeah. you're the more mysterious <laughs> of the three of us. So we want to kind of, what's going on with you? No, I think it was, uh, there were, if there were a list made by the Vatican of the 45 greatest films, I think this should be on it. Wow. Okay. Um, it was huge. That's the other thing. So three hours. It's a, it's a film as big as Russia, as long as Russia. I mean, I, I feel like there's, there's this elongation of time in Russian history. Feudalism lasted there longer than it did in a lot of Europe. You know, more so than the, the Latin West, the church culture is more ancient. The, the style of icon is Byzantine. It ultimately goes back to very early times, and, and whereas the aesthetic of the West has gone through more phases, is more apt to change. I mean, I'm in Rome right now, and so a lot of the, the aesthetic here is, is from the Renaissance, which, which looks rather new next to all of the, the icons. Of um, of the Eastern Orthodox churches, I did not. Just on the on the quality question, I'm not sure if this would make my uh, my top 45 list. It, <laughs> I, I found it um, it was engaging just because of how totally crazy so many of the scenes were, but I found it just very unfocused. Um, that's of course intentional on some level from from Tarkovsky's presentation. I mean, the narrative just. It's not a very, it's not like one continuous narrative, right? I mean, we're spanning about, I think it's, you span about 25 years. And of course, the way he presents it is just with these eight different chapters with an epilogue and a prologue. Yeah, about 10 different parts of, of the film. And um, they're kind of continuous in the sense that they're all based on, on Rublev sort of walking through, journeying through Russia and taking up this or that commission. But um, they're also kind of not very continuous. They're they're somewhat somewhat unrelated to each other in, a, in on on, a, on the deepest level. Um, and so that just yeah, it just gave it a very unfocused presentation. If you're going to do a very unfocused presentation, of course you have to have some kind of strong link between the, them all. And and I, and I would love to discuss what the I think the themes are which do link them all. But just on a again a purely experiential level, um, as a first time viewer, that main link was just simply Rublev, you know, walking through. And to me, just as a character, he just really did not come across as as some as a character that was very interesting to watch. He's really just sort of a set of eyes through which you're seeing stuff. Um, so yeah, on all those those kinds of more superficial sort of the experience of the story kind of levels, yeah, I, I did not find it too terribly engaging. As always on this show, I want to speak publicly about my emotions, kind of tell you how I felt. <laughs> Thank you. It's half the reason why we're doing this podcast. Right. Just, just for me to air that out. I found this movie incredibly engaging in terms of its visuals. Mm -hmm. I do agree. I thought it was very random. I didn't think Andre Rublev as a character, as the main character, 
I didn't feel engaged with him. I, I, I feel like this movie for me was more about Andrei Tarkovsky than Andrei Rublev as a filmmaker. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was much more about kind of spending three hours in medieval Russia and actually being surprised by how fun that was. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I would say this is this definitely makes my top ten visual movies, where for where I was kind of glued just by my eyes to what what I was watching, and it and in a strange way too. I don't I, I wouldn't put in my top forty five of all time, but in a strange way where there's always an element of okay, this is fantastical. You know the fact that Theophanes the Greek he appears to Rublev and his apprentice in the woods. First, you see the ants crawling up his bare feet, like kind of weird, but not in a way that's uh, there's there's no psychedelic element. It's just sort of almost like dreamlike. Um, I thought the same thing too, with even the Mongols invading. It was sort of this sense of wow, these are I've never watched in a film a raid on a town itself and and the chaos that ensues. I mean, in the very last scene with the um the boy who's his father's died who's the great maker of bells but the he's almost like this mystic like he's looking for the the boy's looking for the perfect mud he cries out when he finds it he's like listening to the ground as the molten uh metal is pouring in almost you know prayerful there were just a number of elements where i was wowed by it and i was really drawn in but it all it all did feel very inconclusive to me. I mean, I I, I compare this movie plot wise to La Dolce Vita, which we haven't done, but of course by um, Federico Fellini, and similar. It's set up in chapters. It's all kind of like this. But but that's a movie where I feel like you're constantly studying in a deep way this character in that movie who's a journalist. You come to sympathize with them, but to disagree with them, etc. This film for me was much more about visuals of medieval Russia, and I thought it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I, but I mean, Andrei Rublev as a monk and the other monks. I mean, it's it's, it's thought provoking. They're they're kind of wandering around. We're not used to monks wandering as much. They're sort of independent. They're getting hired as artists. He's accompanied by that woman who's like a holy fool, and she's sort of his innocent companion until she runs off with the Mongols. I didn't find the movie satisfying at all in its plot or in its character study, things that I normally look for. But visually, I was totally engaged for three hours, and I mm-hmm. think there's, that deserves a lot of credit. I like on this podcast that we just get right to the big question, <laughs> what is this movie about? I think, and maybe Father Frank would agree with me, but that part of the sprawling nature and the disjointedness of it is to express Russian reality. And I think another question related to that is, what's the use of art? This is a question that Rublev poses, or he actually says it's useless. After the raid, when he's standing in the ruins of that church, he says, I'm not going to paint anymore, it's useless. And this is, I guess... The thesis that Tarkovsky would like to counter with his film. And I thought one of the interesting things that goes to prove his point is that the film was screened in in, uh, Moscow in 66, but that was a single showing, and it was not allowed to have a wide release because the Soviet regime prohibited it on ideological grounds. 
that's in a, a certain way a recognition of the power of the film and of the power of uh, art in general. You know, so in a sense, Tarkovsky could have felt that as a, an achievement, that prohibition. I, I read somewhere else in an interview of his that he chose black and white because he didn't have to, obviously. I mean, you have color film. He chose black and white partly because in ordinary life, you don't notice colors. I thought that was, a, that was an amazing observation. There's the colorization of the icons at the end. Uh, what is he doing? Is he maybe saying something like, art helps you to see what is always there, but you don't notice. You know, so we don't talk about the colors of our ordinary experience, but when we go to an icon, we say, ooh, look at that blue. And then, of course, there's the, that wonderful gossamer technique that he, the figures in the Trinity icon exhibit. So I think that's one of the things he's trying to do, is he's trying to say there's chaos out there and there's drabness. And somehow art has to overcome those two things. I think there's also a question, just because you mentioned the ending where, this, where the movie turns to color, and it's just kind of a close-up survey of all of his icons that have remained, the famous ones. I didn't find that as a deeply satisfying ending to the whole narrative, but I did find, and neither did I find the scene before of the bell. You know, it's like he's been observing this boy crafting this bell, and then he finally breaks his vow of silence. Remember, he took the vow of silence because he killed, he killed a fellow countryman in the midst of the raid yeah. to try and protect the girl. And I was kind of like, oh, you're going to break your vow of silence for this bellboy or whatever else. But regardless of how I felt about the ending, it's also the black and white color to me as a viewer, did help jump forward. I mean, that was kind of an obvious thing. I mean, what you said about Tarkovsky, about we don't notice colors as much, that's, you know, he said that, so that's true. But also as a viewer, it, 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 it immediately jumps ahead in time. So we're jumping to the present here, his present icons in color, and we're going to look at them and they've survived. But it, But it also creates this really interesting question of we call things that have stood the test of time like the trinity icon and other things we really revere them i mean they're glorious almost because they're antique you know whereas there's that's contrasted our reverence for this sacred art to a to 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 the artist who who did these who was full of angst and doubted his gifts and you know, I think the same thing with Michelangelo. If you read anything about his biography, he's... I remember one time at Dominican House of Studies in D.C., there was a book of Michelangelo's poetry and letters, and his poetry was not very good, and his letters were all about money. It was just like, this pope owes me this, give me this money. <laughs> just, these, we, we, look, we look back and we think, how glorious, but, but nobody in their own present life feels glorious. And I think that's what this movie portrays as well, which seems accurate. I don't think it's just artistic or interesting. It seems accurate that the present always seems a little bit more random and discouraging and up and down versus looking at artifacts, icons, as if he was just this perfect monk with a perfect perception, painting, only painting. Well, he wasn't only painting. He was a monk in all the turmoil of history. Which maybe goes back to what you were just saying, Father Allen, about how Art allows us to see the color, which is always there, you know, so it, we, we may not notice, be able to notice the colors that are always in that present moment. 
but it's through the art that we're able to. Um, and of course, that point is sort of perhaps driven home in the fact that following all the close-ups of all the icons, which are, again, in color, it actually doesn't end with that, as you'll remember, right? It, it then goes to that really beautiful last little just, it's not even a scene, it's just a little shot of horses in the rain, right? And of course, that's also still in color. So to me, that that's like highly significant that it's not just the icons that are in color, but actually after seeing the icons in color, you then go back to the present here on earth um, sites that we're used to seeing, namely horses in the rain, just eating grass. And wow, it looks, it looks resplendent. It looks like an icon because it's in color and because we're, perhaps we've now, we're now seeing the world with new eyes. Quick comment is that color is an aspect of art, but so is perspective. And I found the camera to be very thought-provoking in that you know the movie begins with the aerial perspective from the hot air balloon, but it also has this perspective in the mud. You yeah, know, it has a lot this, of mud. A lot right. of mud. It has this perspective um, within the chapel, so the angles as well, which I which I just thought was was constantly fascinating. Which is another thing that that the artist is able to provide, you know, both giving you the color, but also the, the new perspective on or on reality. Even take something too. I I say this with, I think, a proper warning that there because there's a scene of pagans and Christian interacting, and there's some, you know, showing of the human body, which has to be, you know, kind of averted, you know, avert the eyes when necessary. But there was a scene there too when, uh, again, using camera angle, which I found so effective, where Andrew Rublev as a monk is coming across these pagans in their ritual and in their nakedness, which is which is kind of just shocking that Christianity and paganism, you know, we don't live in a world where these things are so, you know, passing each other by. But but the final scene, just to talk about camera angle, when the when the, the woman involved who tries to tempt him, when she swims right past the boat and the camera follows her right I mean again, that that, that gives this notion of not only you're down in the mud, but how these two ways of life are really close to each other, passing by. Um, the camera was just used in a variety of ways to, to speak, you know. Mm-hmm. The, the camera sent messages as well. It wasn't just dialogue-based. Mm-hmm. There's that amazing shot, I think it's during the invasion, of those birds. Do you remember that one? No. There's, it's, it's a shot from the sky, and two birds emerge, I think, from the bottom of the frame. Mm-hmm. It's, it's looking down on this catastrophe, and the birds, I can't remember exactly what they do. It's almost as if they're, they're shocked by it as well. But, the, yeah, there's just, there's so, there was something so affecting. In yeah, the, and the camera is often kind of floating. Um, and, of course, the whole movie begins with someone gaining a, a new perspective on the world through the hot air balloon, right? So mm-hmm. they're suddenly seeing the world from above. And then, yeah, but then throughout the movie, the, the camera's often above a tree and then gradually falling down below the tree to where we're used to seeing things. And, yeah. So do, you, do you remember stage. that shot, too, when the older monk, Kirill, who's jealous of Andre, when he's leaving, remember, he, he leaves for, what, 10-plus years, and then he comes back. He's railing against them for their materialism and for their greed. And, and it's not always in gold and silver. He's walking out, and there's that huge backdrop of chopped wood of logs almost like a fortress of logs and they were busy chopping wood again just visually as he's railing against them is just i don't know it it, it lights up your eyes in a lot of ways and makes you think 
One other general thought, just to go back, continue with the whole artist theme, which which I think is ultimately, you know, if we're going to ask the question, what is this movie about? I think that is the that is the answer to that. I mean, if I'm going to try to say if that there is one answer, I would I would suggest that it is just about art and about the role of the artist. And it struck me that perhaps the artist is the only the only liver of an authentic life in a sense. It seemed if I throughout the film, I felt like there were like, there were always these three spheres. Um, and two of them are kind of, were, were kind of presented as poles of each other. So you have the secular and you have the sacred, you know, so the, the um, secular authorities, secular powers, uh, you know, particularly emphasized by the, 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 the chaos of the raids, as you have these cities and whatnot trying to protect themselves, failing or choosing to go on conquest. So you have sort of like the chaos of, of, of secular temporal power. And then on the other hand, you have the realm of the sacred, right, which is the monks and the cathedrals and and the churches and the bishop blessing the bell, you know. And yet there's also there seems to be um, in the way that uh, that Tarkovsky presents it, that seems to be just as inauthentic and unsatisfactory in their in the in their uh, work that they're that they're trying to do and in, in bringing heaven into into the world. You know, you have the the monk who leaves the monastery, right? He's talking, telling them about their hypocrisy. You have other other instances in which you you see religious life really not as um, in its best light. But then, you know, in the midst of all this, you have the artist. The artist is presented as as the one who has the one pure calling, and and and, and who actually is able to attain their goal. And um, what is that goal? It's in a sense to maybe bring those two those two realities together which is to say to bring heaven and earth together. And even though the church may not be able to do that on their own, certainly the temporal authorities are not unable to do that on their own. The artist somehow is able to draw those two spheres into perfect harmony. Um, as you see the bell being rung, you know, that will then be in the church as well as the icons, of course. I think the bell is really important. And as, as a kind of corollary to the silence, he takes the vow of silence as a kind of penance, but I also think it's, it's something that he doesn't choose. I think the chaos of the world overwhelms him psychologically. And in a sense, he realizes that he has nothing to say. The chaos, and again, even the chaos of the film, the disjointedness of it and the extremes of it, overwhelm the mind. And you're left in this confused state. And he needs to maintain that, that state before he can speak again, because it doesn't make any sense to speak if you don't have anything to say, and he's got to have time to process everything. And I think that the bell, just in the structure of the film, is a kind of midpoint between silence and full-blown artistry, or you know, the, the glory of, of God. Because a bell is a sound, but it's, it's a very simple sound. It's very pure and modest. The sound of the bell, because of its kinship with the silence or something, helps to, to get Rublev speaking again. Bells are, are just fascinating as, as a Christian. Uh, I remember Cardinal Ratzinger compared the first creation account and the repetition of, of certain things in there, like God saw that it was good. Uh, evening came, morning followed, the third day, things like this. You know, the repetition there reminded him of bells from his childhood and how bells keep time and how amid all of the chaos of history, the bells keep time. And then, of course, you also have the, um, 
just the mysterious fact that it's of, you just have the character of the boy who's the one who the bell caster and that i found that interesting too that yeah you have this whole symbolism of the bell and the huge role that the bell plays in rublev kind of waking up again and choosing to indeed be heartened again by the sound of the bell and then return to his his art because that isn't that what he says he says hey come on let's let's go you know we'll go let's go to the cathedral we will yeah i will i will fill the you know, the world with my icons and you with your bells um, but it's just it was it was a surprising mo- change in the movie when this boy suddenly takes on this huge role and he's almost becomes a kind of a second character um, in the film. And yet it's it's um, again, it's someone who is apart from the, the 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 might and power of the conquesting world. And again, the the artist, in a sense, who who's able to. Uh, play this this humongous pivotal role um in the movie and in rublev's own personal life you see in the last scene too this sympathy between artists i think because uh, to further your point father luke about the tension between the sacred and the secular poles you know you see that in the scene where in the snowy chapel the two brothers you know princes are forced to kiss the cross at night that's a pretty scenic moment but you see you know Rublev is being hired to paint a cathedral, but the other artists are being hired to paint the palace. Remember when the the prince is walking through with his children, and again, so the, the even the artists themselves, even in their commissions, are pulled between the sacred and the secular, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even as, as commissions go. And so, not only Rublev and his contemporaries, but so too this boy. And there's there's something in the end where. Artists alone understand each other in in being this tension between the sacred and the secular being pulled, and um, again, I I, uh, I think there's just a practical. Their place in society is uniquely their place, and it's being competed for. And I think that's some of the reason for sympathy because that boy, as much as he's pulled by the prince, you know, once the prince arrives for the bell consecration by the bishop, the bishop's ignoring the boy. And doesn't care. He's just blessing it with holy water. The prince is basically ignoring the boy. He doesn't care who he is. He's expendable. There are those Italian visitors, the diplomats, who are like speaking, (laughs) just speaking down on all the Russian people in Italian, saying like these people are unbelievable that they can even make bells. But there is something about the, the artist as having no place fully in the sacred or the secular. They're sort of... Um, a unique community unto themselves. So again, it's a meditation on the place of the artist, which they they all get. There's a great contrast between the suddenness of destruction and the lengthy process of creation. Right, and and yeah. how and how art imitates creation in the sense of its slow, patient process. And then all the icons he painted are burned. Yeah. You know, and Theophanes appears to him again and says, it won't be your last iconostasis, it's burned. Go on creating. Like God, go on creating, you know. Mm-hmm. And the bell takes forever, too, the last third of the movie. And, right. and, and, it's, yeah. and it's a huge project. Right. The whole city is there. Right. There's even suddenness from the start. I mean, I remember the first scene where you see the monks, they're taking shelter from the rain with all these villagers. There's the jester right. who basically is arrested. There's a sense in that scene of just Russian medieval society is all the sacred and secular is kind of thrown together. People are just... But also how sudden that jester was just arrested and he's gone. Sometimes things in life happen and then it's changed and then it'll never be the same. And that's how it goes. You mm. know? 
Right. That's sort of scary, but true. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at the end. Here's a positive happening. You have the adoption of the, of the bell maker. Right. And I thought that was interesting, too. I mean, so you have and he says his father never told him the secret. So in a sense, there was a failure of paternity there. But but then the celibate monk comes to be a father for him. And he has a whole an artist, a tradition of artistry that he will actually hand on in a sense. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, the, it's the generativity of God, the, the ability of God to uh, create and to, and to bring out of evil new things. If, if, if I may, just one last thing to say about the artist is that, uh, yeah, I think that all of this goes back to that very, very first scene, you know, of the man in the hot air balloon, um, where you, you have this again, this it's a secular art. It's um, just simply creating a, a hot air balloon, but um, and the, and uh, and he's indeed separate from every sphere on the world, every society, and yet he is he's. I think he kind of symbolizes Tarkovsky's idea of the artist as the one in in their aspiration, right? He's seeking to, to rise above everything and to see everything um, anew, and, and he's of course viewed with a lot of suspicion by the people down below. They're like, who the heck is this guy? There, uh, there's a, a, some 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 violence in how they they treat the people who are helping him, but um, yeah, maybe that maybe that kind of uh, encompasses along with the ending the whole the whole theme. I agree. Right. I think it's a pro air balloon movie. <laughs> Anyone have any uh, any last thoughts before we wrap up, or did we say everything? We're. I just want to announce to people that. Probably every seven or eight films in this podcast, we're going to return to Terrence Malick. We're just going to keep going back <laughs> to the greatest, to the man himself. So our next movie is The Thin Red Line. It's the Pacific Theater in the late days of World War II, Guadalcanal. Jim Caviezel's very first movie before he did Passion of the Christ, among other it's, – it's, it's more philosophy but not on artists, more on war versus peace – not war and peace. We're done with Russian stuff for a while. We could not possibly repeat that close together. <laughs> that is a film, right? War and Peace. Yeah. Oh, at least a few times. A few times so over. maybe later. No promises. Maybe. I'll commit to maybe. <laughs> I'm gonna. I just. I cannot let this finish conclude without just mentioning that one uh, horse scene. This is my, my last and Wait, final which, thought in the movie. There, there were multiple horse scenes. Which <laughs> I know what you're talking about. There are lots of horse scenes. So do you remember the scene? Do you remember there being a scene where you were like, oh, wow, I wonder if that horse is okay? During so, the raid, yep. Yeah, so apparently they literally shot that horse in the back right before that scene so that it was having trouble walking, and then it indeed falls off. And then, like, seconds later, they literally dispatched it. And they were able to justify this by saying, well, and I guess this was the case, that that horse was on the way to the slaughterhouse. And they, uh, they, so they, they hired a to-be-slaughtered horse and just did it themselves and then returned it to the slaughterhouse. Um, so, yeah. All right. That's, that's going to be, be it for tonight. Or for that is a proper conclusion for this film. <laughs> you know, it's like visually fascinating. It's crazy. Uh, semi-inconclusive. Ask Father Frank about that. I will. I will. We'll go out to some Russian, uh, cer- certain Russian sacred music seems appropriate. I we'll think find so. Something. We'll find something. Absolutely. All right. 
Do svidanja. What does that mean?